0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
2: That's right, Woodchuck Chuckers, it's Groundhog
3: Day!
4: Get up and sit me hog
5: out there! Yeah! Come here, <laughs> Uh, welcome to the Dan Prof Show on this Groundhog Day. Unfortunately, particularly after uh, two feet of snow was dumped on the East Coast and a foot of snow in the Midwest, Tony Phil saw a shadow, so six weeks more of winter. Or he didn't see a shadow, so six weeks, I can never remember. Regardless, uh, Groundhog Day, when it comes to the topics that we tackle on this show, certainly is with respect to K-12 through education in urban centers. And we see playing out again in L.A. and New York and Chicago, perhaps most notably in Chicago, the... Uh, recalcitrant teachers union uh, that is engaged in a de facto walkout right now. They do not want to go back to school, even though they've been ordered to go back to school. And so here we are again, just 15 months after the last Chicago teacher strike. And uh, I mentioned yesterday, it's uh, Black Lives Matter Instructional Week in so many government school systems, and frankly, and unfortunately, some private schools as well. It's also National Catholic Schools Week, and Bill McGurn over at The Wall Street Journal had a good piece about Catholic schools and Catholic schools beating COVID, reminding us of some of the luminaries of the left, what they had to say about Catholic education once upon a time. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, quote, Catholic schools have been a pipeline to opportunity. For people like her, poor Latina raised by a single mom, Joe Biden in 1997, um, extolling the virtue of his Catholic education, saying on the Senate floor that the plight of children, quote, presently caught in a failed public school, unquote, was leading him to rethink his opposition to vouchers. Well, uh, somebody did the thinking for him and he's never gotten closer than that. And he's certainly not going to get closer as a wholly owned subsidiary of the Chicago Teachers Union and teachers unions around the country. Have you, as you have so heard from his administration, middling the issue between the teachers union and the administration to the extent that they're really anything other than two sides of the same coin. But in New York, Catholic schools have been operating safely since the fall while teachers' unions continue to fight returning. Obviously, that's the case in Chicago. In L.A., which is home to the largest Catholic school system in the country, 70,000 students, 78% of them are minority children. And uh, it's a little bit different in L.A., a little bit worse even than New York and Chicago, if you can imagine, because uh, Gavin Newsom's shutdown orders also applied to religious schools. Uh, so uh, the opportunity that is present and the opportunities that are not, and uh, what uh, we see happening in our big cities, what that tells us about K-12 education in a moment where everybody's paying attention. So speaking of opportunities, the opportunity perhaps to rethink not only where thousands of families are sending their children to be educated, but also how we do K-12 education in America. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Bob Moszkowski, who's got a pretty good model here in Chicago of how you do K through 12 education, president and founder of Chicago Hope Academy. Bob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. What's your perspective on uh, what you're seeing play out in real time? The sort of the, you know, a lot of politicians like to talk about the two Americas. Well, there are two Americas right now when it comes to K through 12 education. The kids fortunate enough to be able to go to private school and the kids, at least in Chicago, New York and L.A. that are relegated to their neighborhood government school.
6: Yeah, so we've been open since August 14th. We're a high school, Chicago Academy, uh, independent, non-denominational Christian high school. We had about 40 kids transfer in from public schools when they found out they weren't going to open. So in that period, we've had seven students test positive. One was affected. was a night in the hospital. All the others were back as soon as they were allowed to. We've had nine staff get it. One of them was my daughter. Instead of running five miles a day, she ran seven miles a day. <laughs> And general, so we had one one staff member affected, though, where she was out for a couple of weeks, and that was really hurting. But that's uh, we're 287, I actually visited Marist High School, which has 1,200 students on the south side, and had uh, dinner with the principal there, reviewed their new science up, and they've been open the whole time. They do half in the morning, half in the afternoon. So I think my opinion with CPS is you got every principal has at least a master's or a Ph.D. They should have let every principal run their show. They know their students the best. They know their families the best. Why would you not let your principals run their own
5: show for each school? Because that's not who's in charge of the system. The the union is is so bad now. Right. I mean, isn't that right? How else do you describe what's happening? I mean, the conversations, the conversations between, you know, parents of your kids and parents of their friends who go to public schools must be fascinating.
6: Yeah, we're 90% low-income kids. People assume the word "in" – we're independent. The word private reeks of – you know, they think of the Latin school, which – and God bless the Latin school, right? But we're an independent school. We run businesses that fund it. And the last three years, we've gotten substantial funds from this new tax credit law, which this is year four. And it's a four-year – it has to be renewed. And so if you're a student with low-income family making under $38,000, you get $13,000 a year, of course – We have to go find the people who want to do the tax credit, but it's a a step towards choice, and I hope that stays there because it's very obvious that our kids are thriving. Last year we had two Yales, Columbia Brown. We have a kid at Princeton, Notre Dame, University of Chicago, and a bunch of the military, which we're super proud of. But we know where everybody's going when they walk across the stage.
5: And and again, just to repeat, west side of the city, 90 percent low income, uh, mostly minority kids, right?
6: Yeah, mostly black. My own kids were the first white kids in the school. and One of them's a principal. Now I went to Harvard.
5: I mean, do you have you must have conversations with public school principals or be part of conversations with public school parents in Chicago? I mean, how, you know, how do you explain Chicago Hope Academy as and, and that, why that can't be replicated and scaled?
6: Yeah, they have friends, but I mean, it's almost like one of those science fiction movies where everybody's starting to march and they don't want to talk about it. Like, or even friends of mine, like, they just can't. It's not, they don't say it in a malicious way, and we're still friends. And I got to tell you, there's great people in the public schools. They're not all bad. No, I understand. Yeah, we have, there's dedicated people who want to be in it, but doing the best they can. But we know here, so I was walking past the classroom on Friday, and a kid, you know, I did it in high school a few times, you know, when your head's going down and you're nodding off, and I just snapped it back. (laughs) That's when we're live. Do you think? kids in the west side and the south side are really paying attention on Zoom. When it's loud in the background and your, your mom's getting high, I mean, really, it's ridiculous to think that. And to think that all these juniors and seniors, and the low-income south side, minority kids in west side, do you think they've been told they don't have to go to school? Do you think they're going to come back for their senior year at 19? I mean, you just created 30,000 gang members because you're too lazy to open and figure it out.
5: And, oh, by the way, I mean, the uh, data for January in Chicago... After an increase in, in murders by more than 50 percent last year, we're on track to eclipse that based on January over January, more than 50 yeah, murders yeah. Uh, and, and carjackings are up 200 percent. I mean, and, and again, as we know, who the, the super majority of victims of the violent crimes in Chicago are African-Americans and mostly young black men.
6: Yeah, I got to tell you, it was mentioned a few to what the police opinion on it, but any level headed person, black or white or Latino, no. That murders are way up because the mayor's handcuffed the police department. When a guy opens up a fire, which happened last summer, and kills a five-year-old in a barbecue, if one of the co- undercover cops are like the Navy SEALs of the cops, right? Those guys, if they run, run a man down and put him in a headlock after he shot a five-year-old, they're going to snap a bunch of pictures of him with the guy in the headlock on the ground. And I got to tell you, I have foster black sons, and I know this topic very well, that the cops are not the problem. We're killing each other. My son was almost carjacked. And I live on Oakley, a neighborhood that's changed on the west side. It's getting a little better, but it's mixed, really Latino, black, and white. Because we're in the hospital district. We had a neighbor's carjacked on Saturday, a woman carjacked on Saturday, because you get like a misdemeanor for it. And Kim Fox said the other day that she doesn't really want to prosecute the poor kids. Well, so, so
5: I, I suppose then the um, Black Lives Matter in Schools Week, um, that's a little bit different perspective on the police than uh, I think uh, most of the kids, particularly in the suburbs yeah. and exurbs are, are hearing, but, but also the city uh, to the extent yeah, I mean, they're paying attention on Zoom.
6: We're down here every day. It's like Mike Bloomberg, who did a tremendous job at the Juliana in New York. New York crime has skyrocketed. I'm talking about violence. You know, you say we know what a Republican is, being? a Democrat who got carjacked. So, <laughs> and I wasn't a party guy until the last 20 years, you know? Yeah.
5: So, well, this isn't so, a party. I, mean, I mean, the people who have led the school choice movement, as you all well know, in, in municipalities around the country over the last couple of decades— the ones that have been most successful have basically been black Democrats, whether it's Polly Williams in Milwaukee or Miss Virginia in D.C. I mean, this is not a party issue. They they make it a party issue to try and undermine the the the, the, the rationale for it, the, the the obvious support for it. It's just common sense, for goodness sakes.
6: Yeah. And, and so here we are when you're when we're here, and the murders up 50 percent last year, just gone up again in January. Usually they're way down when it's cold because the bad guys are too afraid to come out in, in the cold. And that's because the cops are handcuffed. That's it. You, you could argue with me and say that's not it. It's because of COVID. It's nothing to do with COVID. And it's nothing to do with employment because the guys shooting weren't working anyway. They've been living with their mommy or their girlfriends, and they haven't worked. We've hired a bunch of them in our housing program, and a handful have stuck. You know, the ones that stuck usually had a faith conversion. You know, they were serious yeah. about it for a bigger reason. And now they're making 50000 a year, and they own a house. So, but you, if you're going it, to it, – there's a complete fallacy that everybody wants to work if they had a good job,
5: Right. This is, why, this is why I love talking to you, because um, you have the, the street cred because of what you've done in Chicago Hope to just lay it out straight. And uh, just, there's just so few people anywhere that will tell the truth uh, yeah. that are in, that are practitioners. You're a practitioner. You're telling the truth. I, I always tell people, you know when I know Chicago will be ready to really think system change with K-12 education as soon as they erect a statue of Bob Mazakowski on the west side. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> we'll keep looking for that.
6: <laughs> yeah. You yeah, should have lunch with my wife.
5: <laughs> she, she would disabuse me of that notion. Help me out a little bit. <laughs> Bob, Bob Mozakowski, president, founder of Chicago Hope Academy. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Appreciate it. Okay, Dan. Nice job. Thanks. Take care. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at SchoolChoiceNow. That's at SchoolChoiceNow.
0: Prof Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, a daily beast of all outlets reporting the story according to three sources with knowledge of the matter. The new president's communication staff have already on occasion probed reporters to see what questions they plan on asking. New White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, when called upon during briefings, uh, the White House Correspondents uh, Association, uh, a White House Correspondents Association source telling the Daily Beast it upset enough reporters for people to flag it. Although, you know, you can understand why they'd be asking for uh, the questions in advance so they could get something other than this answer from said White House Press Secretary.
7: I can. I'll circle back if there's more I can share with you. I'll circle back with you if there's more to convey. I'll have to just circle back with you. We can circle back with. I'm happy to circle back with you. I can circle back. I will have to circle back on that one. That's an excellent question. Oh, such an important question. We will circle back with you, and we'll we'll circle back with you. It's an interesting question, but we'll we'll circle back. I'm happy to circle back, but I'll have to circle back with you on it. It's a good question, but we'll circle back with you on this today. We will certainly circle back with you more directly.
5: Yeah, Miss Saki needs to understand. It's not the campaign anymore. They were happy to uh, let the strings show during the campaign because it was uh, anything and everything to uh, advance their political ends, which was, of course, the defeat of President Trump. But now, come on, Jen. Come on. We can't be seen to be doing that. We have to pretend we're still the fourth estate. We have to pretend we still have uh, a posture of Seeking the truth and holding those in power to account in a transparent way for what's going on or isn't going on. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Joseph Starrs. He's the director of journalism and communications and U.S. programs at the Fund for American Studies. Mm-hmm. Joseph Starrs, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Um, what about uh, the story of uh, the, White House, uh, the, the White House Press Corps bristling at the White House Press Secretary for wanting questions in advance? Uh, what does that say about the state of uh, journalism inside the Beltway today?
2: Well, uh, Dan, I'd love to answer your question, but can I circle back there and come back to you in just a minute? Sure. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, it, it's it's silly because uh, <laughs> the, no no self respecting journalist. Would ever agree to that? Uh, it's just standard practice that you don't do that, and uh, you know it just shows that uh, hey, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to speak to uh, truth to power, then you're have to going to have to speak the truth, and you're not going to get uh, advanced, uh, you know, questions. It doesn't work that way.
5: Yeah, I mean, so I, you know, it's just interesting given uh, journalism is under such um, uh, a is, is, well, I guess I would say is enduring a real crisis of legitimacy. Maybe the mm-hmm. DC press corps doesn't feel that way, but it seems to be the case according to a lot of uh, public opinion surveying. And and so, with you being the director of the journalism and, and comms program at Fund, mm-hmm. Fund for American Studies, what is that interaction? What are those conversations like with aspiring journalists?
2: Well, we teach our students, our uh, journalism students, to be straight shooters that regardless of where they sit on the political spectrum, that their job is to go after the truth. And uh, so that's what we're aiming uh, to do, and that's what we're teaching our students, just to be straight shooters when it comes to being a uh, reporter. And uh, don't, uh, don't imitate your elders that you see often or hear often in, in the press.
5: Dude, do they wonder, do they have questions about, are we supposed to be activists? Are we supposed to advance a particular policy agenda? You know how how do we balance those competing interests of like here are my views, but then I'm covering this beat or this or I'm doing this story.
2: Well, that's definitely a problem in a lot of journalism schools, and there definitely is a, a sort of a crusader mindset with a lot of journalists. You know, they want to go out and change the world, which is all well and good, but. At the end of the day, their job is to report the news, to report what they see, report what they hear, and not try to interpret it. So, uh, you know, it's been a problem along, you know, going way back with uh, mostly in the journalism schools. But, uh, you know, what we try to tell our students, and we have a great professor by the name of Richard Benedetto. He was a founding reporter for USA Today, wrote the first headline story uh, for that paper, and he really presses home the point that that's their job, to report what they see, report what they hear, and, and tell viewers and readers just that. And it's not complicated. Uh, that's simply their job, and that's what they're supposed to do.
5: With a new digital landscape, uh, how much of the conversation is about um, the, our increasingly censorious culture? I mean, when you have, for example, before the election, the New York Post uh, being uh, you know frozen out on Twitter for uh, the Hunter Biden story that uh, the, the Twitter minders found to be uh, illegitimate or some such thing—that um, that, that the, the idea that some people should be deplatformed and other people shouldn't, or that the First Amendment should only uh, uh, provide for those views that I deem legitimate—and and and how you uh, how you approach those freedoms that guarantee a free press, but also guarantee a free people.
2: Sure. So I'm not quite sure that our students. Uh understand how nefarious this is and what a problem it is and so what we're trying to do and the conversations that we're trying to have with our students is that there shouldn't be these all-powerful gatekeepers that uh, there should be unfettered access to those in power and that uh, their job as journalists is to get to those people in power and to question them and uh, so those uh it's a problem and uh, it's worrisome but i think uh, we're on the right track here at the Fund for American Studies, trying to raise up uh, journalists who are going to go beyond what, uh, what's happening right now.
5: Uh, tell us about the, the funds, uh, U.S. programs. And I know uh, your capital semester students began in mm-hmm. D.C. this week.
2: Right. So uh, every summer we bring students to D.C. uh, to uh, what we say live, learn, and intern. And uh, we secure internships for them. They take courses in economics, uh, courses in limited government, and we really try to teach honorable leadership to the students while they're with us. And so they get a good combination of classes, internship, speakers, guest lectures, the whole full Washington experience but at the same time, focusing on those higher values, the idea that they need to be a leader who's honorable, who seeks the good of others, and who really lives that. So we're doing a, a dual track sort of approach, you know, giving them experience, but teaching them about uh, honor and leadership and the efficacy of the free market system. So it's a really good program and it's a We're proud of what we uh, what we offer the kids.
5: And this is, uh, you know, across the country and across the political spectrum, too. This is one of the rare uh, programs, uh, institutions that is interested in, you know, sort of the competition of ideas side by side and, and that interplay.
2: Exactly. Uh, we're not we're not preaching to the choirs, and you know we encourage the students when they get together to you know debate and uh, you know don't be afraid to disagree, just do it without being disagreeable, and uh, so we really are ho- focusing and harnessing that classical idea of, as you say, the, the clash of ideas and. Seeking the truth and, and coming to, uh, if not a consensus, but at least a willingness to learn to listen to the other person and to respect the other person, regardless of whether you agree with him or not.
5: He is Joseph Starrs, the director of journalism and communications and U.S. programs at the Fund for American Studies. Uh, for more on those programs, TFAS.org. TFAS.org is the site. Joseph Starrs, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you much. I appreciate it. Brought to you by the Fund for American Studies. The Fund for American Studies is an educational nonprofit that is changing the world by developing leaders for a free society. Offering transformational programs that teach the principles of limited government, free market economics, and honorable leadership to students and young professionals in America and around the world. Download a free ebook to learn how you can become a champion for liberty at teachingfreedom.org.
0: Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. So a lot of ink has been spilled about uh, the political future of Liz Cheney because she's... Chairman of the House Republican Conference, although there is some movement afoot to uh, remedy that situation after not just voting to impeach Trump in the House, but some of the -the over-the-top rhetoric she used in advance of her vote and in defense of her vote. She's been rebuked by at least one Wyoming Republican Party and more than that. She's drawn her a, a primary opponent already, a, a state legislator who, according to a recent poll that was released by uh, John McLaughlin, who's a pretty respected pollster inside D.C., can't be off by this much in terms of you know, directionally correct, has her down to this state legislator by almost 30 points. So Liz Cheney, political dead woman walking with respect to impeachment at Wyoming, is just revolting against Liz Cheney. So we'll see. There's one, Tom Rice, who's a Republican from South Carolina. He was censured by the South Carolina Republican Party for his vote for impeachment. Nothing has happened to Adam Kinzinger, who is from Exurban Illinois down to central Illinois. Also, one of the more outspoken critics of President Trump. He's also focusing a lot on Marjorie Taylor Greene right now. He's always doing sort of CNN's bidding. At least that's the path he's chosen in recent years, in the Trump years, really. And uh, there is a movement afoot with some county parties in Illinois, I know, to censure him. We'll see what transpires. But he released a video yesterday trying to uh, recast his position, I guess, take advantage of his CNN, MSNBC stardom by doing their bidding from the Republican side of the aisle. They're always looking for these types. Now he's starting a federal pack, country first. And uh, here's uh, Representative Kinzinger on how he says Republicans have lost their way. He doesn't say it explicitly, but it's the implication
8: pretty clear under Trump. The Republican Party has lost its way. If we are to lead again, we need to muster the courage to remember who we are. We need to remember what we believe and why we believe it. Looking in the mirror can be hard, but the time has come to choose what kind of party we will be and what kind of future we'll fight to bring about. The choice is ours, and I've made mine.
5: It's nice that uh, he got one of the kids from Glee to accompany the uh, video. I, it's all very um, standard issue, sort of boilerplate establishment rhetoric. You talk about uh, convictions and principles without ever describing exactly what your convictions and principles are, uh, and you offer you know sort of the tortured platitudinous uh,
8: constructs like it's time to you know walk towards the light the GOP I signed up for was built on a foundation of principle and it was filled with hope we believed a brighter future was just around the bend and we fought tirelessly to get there we stood for equal opportunity firm in our conviction that a poor kid from the south side of Chicago deserves the same shot as a privileged kid from Highland Park We knew that if we brought everyone into America's promise, we would unleash a new era of American progress and prosperity. But in recent years, we've forgotten our principles. The party that always spoke of a brighter tomorrow, it no longer does. It talks about a darker future instead. Hope has given way to fear. Outrage has replaced opportunity. And worst of all, our deep convictions are ignored. They've been replaced by poisonous conspiracies and lies. This is not the Republican road. And now we know exactly where this new and dangerous road leads. It leads to insurrection and an armed attack on Congress. You see, uh, everybody who uh, supports Trump or voted for Trump, even even if
5: you had concerns and rolling concerns for years about his personality and some of his communication choices and stuff. But you voted for him based on policy. You're nothing more than a QAnon conspiracy theorist ready to uh, riot at the Capitol. That's the caricature mm-hmm. that... Uh, gets Adam Kinzinger caricature of Trump voters that gets Adam Kinzinger so much airtime on CNN and MSNBC. Here's
8: the crescendo. Republicans must say enough is enough. It's time to unplug the outrage machine, reject the politics of personality and cast aside the conspiracy theories and the rage. It's time to turn back from the edge of darkness and return to the ideals that have long been our guiding light. The party of first principles must once again put principles first.
5: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Wonderful parallel structure there. It's uh, so cliched, hackneyed. Uh, but here's the thing Kinzinger has statewide aspirations in Illinois, and so he's trying to be, you know, the Republican who sucks up to the Democrats and says, you know, I think those conservatives or those Trump voters are crazy too, but I'm okay trying to middle for uh, political expediencies uh, purposes, not anything related to principles that he doesn't describe his laudable military service notwithstanding. Uh, It's the Potomac two-step you see all the time. It's nothing new. It's nothing particularly interesting. The only thing that is somewhat useful is uh, we'll see what Kinzinger's political fortunes are in the coming years with respect to higher office or even maintaining his current office because that may be a leading indicator about whether Illinois is ever going to have a Republican Party again or not. Uh, It just like we see indicators or look for indicators of a Republican Party to reestablish itself in places like California. They may have an opportunity with a Newsom recall afoot. Uh, Or New York seems less of an opportunity there. So it's worth watching for uh, Kinzinger in Illinois for that purpose alone.
1: The
0: more you listen, the more you'll know. This This is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, um, the Lincoln Project and the John Weaver story. We uh, discussed yesterday with Ryan Gerdusky, uh, the journalist who broke the story, uh, that uh, was really not bubbling up to the surface until the New York Times picked it up, and now it is uh, on the surface. And uh, those Lincoln Project co-founders, those Beltway Creatures, George Conway, Rick Wilson, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, uh, Molly Jung Fast, as Gerdusky mentioned yesterday, the editor-at-large of Daily Beast, who was an advisor, who was on the advisory board of the Lincoln Project, all have some questions to answer, or oh, they should, and, uh, I mean, uh, a little bit more probing than Mika, a part of Joyka, was with George Conway yesterday on her insufferable program. And, and uh, you know it's important. We had Gerduska on yesterday, but I want to recast some of what he had to say just to drive the point home and to make sure that uh, people are aware of this and they're sharing this. So the hypocrisy is staunched at least a little bit. New York Times was compelled enough to report on this, probably so they didn't face the same legitimate criticism they faced for uh, for not covering the terror Reid allegations of Joe Biden during the campaign because, of course, they had a political agenda to serve. Well, they didn't want to get caught here as well. And John Weaver at this point with uh, Trump gone, you know, what does The New York Times need John Weaver and the Lincoln Project for? It's f- fine time to throw him under the bus. And by the way, legitimately so. He should have been thrown under the bus, it sounds like, from everybody who knew about his creepiness and predatory conduct decades ago. Uh, but this is uh, George Conway going back to this. George Conway... Mika, Mika, her gentle inquiry about uh, what George Conway, Beltway insider, knew about John Weaver, who uh, was a known quantity for decades in D.C.
4: And George Conway, uh, thanks for being on this morning. I'd be remiss uh, not to ask you about uh, the story about John Weaver, who is a founding member of the Lincoln Project. 21 men accusing him of online harassment. Your organization has a pretty clear statement on this kind of harassment, um, but wanted to ask you directly about this issue.
0: Yeah,
6: it's it's terrible and awful and appalling and unfathomable. I, I I didn't know John very well. I frankly only spoke to him a couple of times on the phone early on in the Lincoln Project. Um, I just, I, I, it's almost. I don't know even know what to say. It's just it's just terrible, and um, I,
5: I, I it leaves me speechless. I speechless, of course. All right, Fain, uh, that's good enough for Mika. Sure, no problem. Okay, moving on. Um, didn't know. Only talked to him a couple times. What did you know about him, counselor? <laughs> Uh, Ryan and Gerdusky and make a very generous characterization of the Lincoln Project's response. Uh, Ryan Gerdusky with uh, the actual reaction the Lincoln Project provided as this information started getting closer and closer to the surface.
3: Yeah, I was able to sit there and actually release all the text messages and emails I've had from John Weaver for months and months and months and wrote the story. A victim then came out and also the story on uh, his own platform. And uh, he came out two days after I did um, and then I mean on t- between my story, his story, and the men online who were just releasing their own information, it had to be close to a hundred young men. The Lincoln Project in that time all they d- they didn't respond to anything they didn't say anything. all they did was it just took John Weaver's picture off their website mm-hmm. and they kind of hoped it went away then that Friday on a Friday news dump when no one's reading the news, Axios writes a complete nonsense puff piece about John Weaver that he's gay and struggles with the fact that he has a wife and daughter and that all these messages he deemed were appropriate. And you know what, Lincoln Project, they didn't say a word about it. Finally, the New York Times comes forward and they did great reporting. They had 21 men who start at the age of 14 years old going into even deeper things. This wasn't just somebody who had an inner demon and was, you know, on his second marriage to a woman, but was gay. This wasn't somebody who was just having sexual proclivities. This was somebody who was using the trust he built from the institution he belonged to the Lincoln project to prey on young men and tell them, I will give you a job if you give me sex. And he did it over and over and over again. He did it over 100 times in a five-year period. Bill Cosby would blush.
5: Bill Cosby would blush at what John Weaver did, how he behaved for years and years and years. And as Gurdersky went on to tell me yesterday, everyone knew, and it is not plausible, that these institutional operatives like Weaver and Schmidt and Wilson— the McCain campaign and the Kasich campaign and the four years or a couple of years at least of raising money to go after Trump didn't know about John Weaver in that tiny bubble. Pardon my Don Ho of DC political operatives and media types.
3: By the way, this was the biggest. Working on this story for the last seven seven months that I've worked on it. This was the biggest open secret in Washington DC. I've never done a story on sexual harassment before, so I called one of my friends who is a journalist who's done many stories on sexual harassment and I said, How do I approach somebody who has been a victim of sexual harassment? I need to know you know how to act. I said they've been sexually harassed by a well known political consultant. And he said, Oh, John Weaver? <laughs> they everyone knew. Sure. Everyone, everyone, everyone knew. Another very well known household name, Republican conservative who hates Trump, was asked to be part of the Lincoln Project and responded, I will never do anything with John Weaver because he's a creep.
5: And the D.C. press corps' willful blindness? Interesting. So, so they,
3: everyone, everyone knew that this was happening. These, and they uh, were lying and they were covering it up. And the and by the way, the Lincoln Project co-founders were on MSNBC and CNN 17 times in three weeks after my story came out, guess how many times they asked them about John Weaver? Zero. Zero.
5: Right. And compare that to uh, the coverage that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, socialist Spice Girl front no, front girl, uh, that she got for uh, disclosing that she's a sexual assault survivor on an Instagram riff yesterday. Uh, I'm not, and I'm not questioning that she is. I have no idea. Uh, that I'm not questioning her sincerity. But the coverage that got— So again, the same vanguards of the Me Too movement that uh, walk past accusers like Tara Reid when they're accusing a uh, useful target for their political agenda. And the same thing here with John Weaver.
0: Podcast of the show at Danprofshow dot com
9: Sports and Politics. Sports and politics and sports and politics and intersection. Arrogance and ignorance, arrogance, ignorance, and arrogance and ignorance.
8: Intersection.
5: Yeah, this is on the uh, trans order that was uh, signed by Joe Biden. That uh, overturns uh, state laws like that in Idaho, the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which made Idaho the first state to ban transgender athletes in women's sports. But if you receive federal funds, then you have to let uh, men who are identifying as women compete in women's sports. And uh, so this has drawn some response, including, well, uh, starting in Idaho, I guess, start there, Idaho State Runner Madison Kenyon she was on uh, Fox uh, speaking out against this she was uh, one of the girls who had filed a lawsuit explaining it's uh, a little bit frustrating and unmotivating to compete against biological males because of course of the natural advantage they have how much of a natural advantage well for example C.C. Telfer was ranked 200th and 390th in 2016 and 2017 respectively in uh, the track events that uh, he competed in as a male athlete. This is in Division II men's college athletics. He became a national champion after transitioning and being allowed to compete against women. 390th and 200th in Division Two men's athletics, national champion in women's athletics. Not surprising. Uh, Marcellus Wiley, he, uh, NFL standout, played for 10 years. You know, you've seen him. He became a commentator. I mean, this is a sharp guy, and he's willing to be outspoken. He tweeted out, as a father of three daughters and the husband to a former collegiate athlete, this hits home in a special way. It's time to create a separate transgender category in competition. Also, I think it's time for me to start a podcast because some things need to be discussed in detail. Uh, I don't think separate category. I think, you know, biology matters. Biological man, biological women. You know, woman. There are two sexes. Men, Women. This doesn't need to be controversial, but just to at least Wiley is willing to push the envelope here. And this is not the first time. So Marcellus Wiley is someone to watch. He offered this pushback to Black Lives Matter back when uh, it first started gaining real national acceptance.
10: Really look into the mission statement of Black Lives Matter. But I did. And when you look into it, there's a couple things that jump out to me. Being a father and a husband, that's my mission in life right now. How do I reconcile that, what I just told you, with this mission statement that says, quote, we dismantle the patriarchal practice. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Children from single-parent homes versus two-parent homes. The children from the single-parent homes, this is in 1995 I was reading this. Five times more likely to commit suicide. Six times more likely to be in poverty. Nine times more likely to drop out of high school. Ten times more likely to abuse chemical substances. Fourteen times more likely to commit rape. Twenty times more likely to end up in prison. And 32 times more likely to run away from home. I knew that. You know why I knew it? Because a lot of my friends didn't have family structures that were nuclear like mine, and they found themselves outside of their dreams and goals and aspirations.
5: Maybe you can uh, take uh, Marcellus Wiley's comments uh, and send them with your kid to school to uh, actively participate in the Black Lives Matter in Schools Week, both on Black Lives Matter, the organization itself, as well as on all their trans-affirming, queer-affirming propaganda. This is Dan Proff.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Proff Show. Follow us at DanProffShow.com, at DanProff and at Dan Prof Show on social media. The Trump impeachment trial 2.0 begins next week. I get some legal perspective on that uh, from somebody who knows one of the uh, gentlemen retained to be part of Trump's defense team. Bruce Castor, who is an attorney from Pennsylvania. We're pleased to be joined by George Perry, who's a former federal and state prosecutor. He is a regular contributor to the American Spectator and blogs at knowledgeisgood.net. He also hails from Philadelphia. George, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Dan. Glad to be with you. Tell us about uh, Bruce Castor and uh, what uh, kind of approach we could expect from him in concert with his colleagues in defense of President Trump.
11: Well, Bruce Castor made his reputation as the district attorney of Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia. He was a very effective prosecutor, a real tough on crime kind of guy. Uh, He's a bit of a hammerhead. My friends who've tried cases against him say that uh, he's decent when presenting the facts in a relatively simple, uh, straightforward crime, such as murder or something like that. But he's no huge legal scholar. I don't see that, by the way, as an impediment, is doing an effective job for the president in this cu- upcoming show trial. He's a tough guy. He's got courage, uh, but he's no great legal mind.
5: So it'll just be uh, blocking and tackling, which uh, when you're talking about an article of impeachment based on incitement to riot and, uh, you know, you, you can just block and tackle to dispatch with that case. And in, in point of fact, one might even argue that they should rest their case before they open it and just call the question?
11: I mean, it's pretty clear from the vote that uh, Rand Paul's forced that uh, you've got 45 Republicans who are ready to say there shouldn't even be a trial. So you start out with a safety net. But if, if I was representing Trump, I would want to uh, go all out in attacking the article of impeachment that says that Trump lied about how the election was conducted, and that was part of the incitement for the mob to have that incursion on Capitol
5: Hill. You would raise the issue of, uh, of election fraud?
11: Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, look, Trump has been unable to get any court in the country to listen to the evidence. You know, everybody says, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence? Courts have rejected these claims all over the country. No court has ever adjudicated the issue. They've all taken a dodge. You know, they said, well, you lack standing, you know, it's Tuesday and should have filed this on a Thursday. I mean, all the usual nonsense that courts use to avoid having to take on difficult cases here, thanks to this article of impeachment, Trump has been offered an opportunity to come forward with all of the evidence of fraud. And trust me, there's a ton of evidence of fraud, especially in Pennsylvania. And this is his chance. This is his chance to get it out there. Now, you're not going to have a real judge presiding over this. I mean, the last rumor was it was going to be Patrick Leahy, the Democrat senator from Vermont, who is hardly going to be uh, fair and impartial. And he may rule all of that evidence out of order. But I think Trump and his lawyers need to go right in and hit it head on. This is their opportunity to make their case. The best defense in any criminal case is a good offense. I've always contended that that's how I've tried my criminal cases. You go at the other side and you go right for the throat.
5: But as a legal matter, if you knew mm-hmm. you had the votes on the jury to acquit, why would yeah. you risk anything other than calling the question? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I have the votes I need. You have 45 Republican mm-hmm. senators. They don't believe it's constitutional per Rand Paul Str- straw vote, as you mentioned. Why would I go down any of these roads that could uh, anger and depending on how well it's uh, presented, even push some Republicans to change their position when I have the votes I need?
11: Look, what do I know about the U.S. Senate? I stay away from it as every chance I get. But my sense is the evidence presented, the arguments presented aren't going to add up to anything. This is a political show trial. Well, I understand. The lines have already been drawn. Yeah, the lines have already been drawn. You know, the Republicans need to take into account that if they go along with convicting Trump, the Republican Party is going to get split in two because a large part of the Republican Party are now committed Trumpsters. So that's part of the political calculation from the standpoint of the legal careful counsel approach. You're you're correct. If you can win it on a straightforward issue where you already know the outcome. Fine. Go ahead and do that.
5: I'm sorry to interrupt, but the political calculation is is complicated. I mean, you have Lindsey Graham, unsurprisingly, but I think representative Mm -hmm. of other Republican senators who just want to get past this, you know, sort of trying to to intimidate Democrats from calling witnesses. If you got start calling witnesses, we're calling the FBI to testify, that goes, that sort of thing. That tells me yeah. they just want it to peacefully go away. Everybody vote their shares to satisfy their bases. And let's get back to the chummy business of being a member of the U.S. Senate. That's that's where I think the, yeah. the, 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 the critical mass is right now.
11: Well, I think you have much better political instincts than I have. I've achieved the great glory of being a retired lawyer with. Out two nickels to rub together because of my <laughs> political <laughs> instincts. <So. laughs>
5: well, I, I appreciate that. You know, there's um, there's a documentary by this songwriter it just reminded me of that because I that's probably where I'm going to end up too, uh, George. So uh, this documentary really spoke to me. It's a documentary about a, a Nashville songwriter named Griffin House who was supposed to be like the next huge star. Uh, he's a singer songwriter, and uh, he's gonna sort of it's called Rising Star. I recommend it. Um, And he's been, you know, 15 years uh, on the trail and he makes a living and he does fine. He's got a nice family, but he hasn't obviously been the breakout star because most people don't know his name. And he he just made this comment about not uh, achieving his advanced billing, at least to this point. He said, you know, you just you can't control how the world receives you. And so you just got to give you just got to provide something authentic. And then however the world receives you, receives you. So that's uh, that's how I'm going to characterize what you did in your legal career, too.
11: (laughs) Yeah, Well. All I can say is, uh, it was a very interesting career. Um, and leave it at that. Uh, I was in, well, look, I was in prosecution far too long and I knew what I was doing at the time. You're not going to get rich being a prosecutor, but I was happy to do it and I'm glad I did it. And, uh, now, my wife just sit and shiver in the darkness and stare at each other.
5: So, <laughs> it's, right, it's real <laughs> it's, it's, it sounds like you're enjoying your golden years. Yes, yeah, so it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about another legal matter. And this is uh, the news yeah. out yesterday that it, it, uh, it doesn't appear, at least at this point, that uh, there'll be charges filed against that uh, police officer who shot and killed Ashley uh, Babbitt. Uh, the day of the mm-hmm. rioting at the Capitol, the police investigators made initial determination charges against the officer are not warranted. The U.S. attorney's office mm-hmm. in Washington, uh, D.C., leading the broader investigation. Um, and uh, the, the the point here is important that with respect to bringing federal charges against an officer, uh, you have to prove not only that uh, the officer used excessive force, but that the officer willfully violated uh, Ashley Babbitt, and this is in this case her constitutional rights, and that's just a difficult case to make out. But I wanted to get your reaction to that initial determination.
11: Well, the constitutional rights overlay really doesn't um, affect the determination here. I know that's part of the equation, but if if you just break it down into its factual component parts the argument can be made that the officer who fired thought that the mob was about to come into the whatever chamber it was the house or the senate i don't know which chamber and uh you know create mayhem and he he fired a shot clearly he shouldn't have done that but under the circumstances uh, the you know the use of force was justified but and this is a big but the, the real calculation here is are you going to charge a member of the Capitol Police Department when you've got the entire U.S. Congress, Republican and Democrat, behind the Capitol Police right. and f- singing their praises? That's what's really going on here, and nobody in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which is entirely dependent on having the goodwill of Congress, is going to do anything to upset that narrative. So that's really what was at work
5: here. Well, and to your point, I mean, you have Republican Congressman from Oklahoma, Mark Wayne Mullen, saying, I believe they were wanting to hurt us. Uh, my thought was, mm-hmm. how are we going to handle this one? Uh, he said, uh, I believe uh, that the that the lieutenant saved some people's lives that day. So, I mean, you know, if you were to charge that officer, you put Representative Mullen on the stand, there goes your case. You just you can't make out the case. Yeah,
11: yeah. Plus, you're going to wind up in front of a federal judge who owes his seat on the bench uh, to uh, members of Congress. And you're going to wind up with a D.C. jury, uh, which they know how to read the tea leaves. I mean, ordinarily, they're they're anti-police. But in this case, I think they would make an exception. Uh, Yeah, it was clear to me from the, the second that happened that nothing was going to happen to that police officer
5: george perry former federal and state prosecutor regular contributor to the american spectator blogs at knowledgeisgood.net george thanks for joining us appreciate it
11: okay so glad to be with
0: you.
7: this
0: is the dan proft show
5: Welcome back to the show and uh, talking uh, a little bit earlier in the program about uh, the lack of competent journalism. Here is the, uh, the the opposite of that. This is from Cheryl Atkinson, friend of the show, on her full measure program. A uh, dig into the CDC's erroneous advisory on whether or not to take the COVID vaccine if you have been infected. Does the vaccine help those who've been infected? The trials, Pfizer, Moderna trials, do not provide any evidence to support the claim that there is a benefit to those who are infected taking the vaccine. But that is not what the CD is saying. And it's not what the CDC continues to say, even after called on it multiple times and agreeing multiple times that they're wrong, with Thomas Massey, Republican congressman from Kentucky. Now, Massey, uh, who has had uh, his run-ins over the years with Trump when he was president, but set that aside. This has nothing to do with that. Massey, it turns out, is an MIT-educated scientist, not in the infectious disease space, but he's still somebody that has a pretty good appreciation of the scientific method, uh, award-winning in his field, grants and so forth, Uh, and he has the competence to read studies and understand what the results so indicate and what they don't indicate. So uh, Massey on those Pfizer and Moderna trials, what they do or do not confirm.
1: It says the exact opposite of what the data says. They're giving people the impression that this vaccine will save your life, even or, or, you know, save you from suffering, even if you've already had the virus and recovered which has not been demonstrated in either the Pfizer or the Moderna trial.
5: So it's not demonstrated. Why is this important? Well, what can what harm is it? Well, we live in a world of scarcity, including with vaccine doses. So you want prioritization, or at least some people do. Rational people are not beset by identitarian politics. Do you want to go from providing vaccines to the highest risk groups to the lowest risk groups? Right. That just makes sense. So if you have the vaccine I mean, excuse, excuse me, if you had been infected uh, and you're over 65, for example, or you're a frontline worker well, pass on the vaccine so somebody who hasn't been affected and who's high risk can get the vaccine. This is not complicated. But it turns out to be in practice. This is uh, uh, the first call that Representative Massey made to the CDC, and he re- began recording these calls because he was frustrated at how little progress he was making in getting them to acknowledge that what they were putting out into the public sphere was incorrect. It was not supported by the evidence, by the data, by the science from the clinical trials. His call with a woman named Dr. Amanda Cohen at CDC.
4: Massey says he was so alarmed by
5: the misinformation, he decided to record the calls. On a December 16th call, CDC's Captain Amanda Cohn seemed to agree that people who've had coronavirus
4: shouldn't rush to get vaccinated. People who have had disease, you know, given that there's limited doses right now, we're, we are suggesting that those people wait.
10: Right.
5: We are suggesting those people wait. Uh, they, she went on to basically thank Massey for catching their error. On the call,
4: CDC's Dr. Cohn thanked Massey for flagging their mistaken claim that vaccines were proven to work for people who've had coronavirus.
5: But didn't correct it. Just keep repeating the same incorrect information.
1: So take two, Representative Massey back at it. So I called them up on Tuesday as soon as I could to ask them why it hadn't been fixed. And it was like I was starting all over with the same people. And instead of fixing it, they proposed repeating it and just phrasing their mistake
9: differently.
4: I'm always happy to talk with you.
9: This call with CDC's Washington, D.C. director Anstis Brand.
1: If there's a they who is refusing to fix something that is factually and provably wrong, I want to know who they is because this is going to result and it's already resulting in misallocation of the vaccine. let me check that and
4: get
5: back to you as soon as possible. All right, there's CDC official number two. Here's take three with CDC principal deputy director, Dr. Ann Shukat.
1: And I'm really disappointed it's gone on a month without being fixed. Like, really disappointed.
4: As you note correctly, there is not sufficient analysis to show that in the subset of only the people with prior detection there's efficacy. So you're correct that that sentence is wrong and that we need to make a correction of it. I apologize for the delay. But in terms of a large scale, you know, trying to mislead people, um, uh, i just give you my um, word that that was not the intent. So really apologize about the confusion that we apparently caused. And perhaps the Um, as you say, you know, people who are fairly low risk rushing to get
5: vaccine and people who are higher risk. Well, then why did it take a month? And oh, by the way, (laughs) at the end of the piece, the tweaked language still leads one to believe that the vaccine has a benefit to those who have been infected. They still didn't change it. Even after that conversation, full admission, a month, nothing. And uh, just for another expert to weigh in, uh, who does have expertise in this space. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, you've heard on this show before. He's part of uh, the Barrington Declaration. He's also uh, an economist and medical doctor at Stanford.
12: People who have had previous infection, the vaccine, the evidence, the trial evidence shows that it is not effective in preventing additional, additionally preventing the disease. Why would it be? You're already immune. If the CDC has that on its on its site, then it is doing the public a disservice, uh, both the people that get vaccinated that don't really need it because they've been previously infected, and also the people who should be prioritizing the vaccine but aren't getting it because of shortages.
5: So will the CDC be deplatformed by the social media oligarchs for spreading misinformation about COVID-19? Well, I hear Brian Stelter and the uh, chorus of Leftist Goofs on CNN and MSNBC railing about CDC misinformation? Will I hear Tony Fauci and the Biden coronavirus task force being taken to the mat over this matter? And so you'll pardon me, uh, you'll excuse me if uh, when the CDC issues a guideline against cheering loudly at uh, the super Super Bowl party, you may or may not attend this year if I don't take them so seriously. And this is doesn't even get into. Uh, the track record of these various CDC, NIH, scientists, experts over the last year. The same scientists and experts who are providing the predicate for L.A. County to ban restaurants and bars from turning on TVs so that people don't congregate in their bars. Oh, sure. Uh, Or their restaurants. Sure, exactly. Don't stay at the bar. Go home where there's less space congregate in your home where we already know a majority of the transmission occurs to begin with and what do we know about restaurants and bars uh, infinitesimal fraction of the overall transmission everywhere and, um, and and then people who will not correct an error that they admit over and over again even as you go up the food chain in terms of decision making even if you're a member of Congress but I'm supposed to give them the benefit of the doubt I don't think so
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the show. Uh, Everett Piper, formerly president of Oklahoma Wesleyan, uh, responding in the Washington Times to the calls by certain never-Trump evangelical Christians. For evangelical Christians to apologize for voting for Trump, including uh, somebody we talk to, semi regularly, David French, who is just getting further and further afield, as far as I can tell, at Stetzer of the Billy Graham Center in Wheaton, Illinois, my hometown. It's a time for reckoning for American evangelical Christians, said Stetzer. French called for the evangelicals to publicly apologize to the nation. Joanne Lyon, general superintendent, emerita and ambassador for the Wesleyan Church, posts on social media that many prisoners within her own denomination might be unwittingly members of a cult in need of being reprogrammed. Uh, Piper says, basically, uh, in supporting the argument, is in supporting uh, the orange man, you implicitly endorsed his childish antics and his boorish behavior. You changed your morality is the accusation. And Piper's response, there's a problem with that accusation. It's not true. I don't know one biblically grounded Christian who ever endorsed Trump's sins. I know thousands, however, who rightly consider the sins of Kamala Harris, Joe Biden, and all those who voted to empower them to be much greater. For more on that topic to start, and then we'll get into some others. Please be joined again by Rabbi Dov Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Rabbi, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
13: Thanks so much for
9: having me, Dan. Uh,
5: what about that? I guess if uh, David French and uh, some of the other evangelical luminaries think evangelicals should apologize to the nation for voting for Trump, then so should um, religious Jews who voted for Trump.
13: Well, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I've been all my career. There's no apology at all. I'm, I'm proud that I voted for Donald Trump twice, for many of us theologians. We were bothered and troubled by aspects of Donald Trump's personal behavior, but we don't elect our presidents, apparently, based on their morality or ethics, because otherwise you would not have Kamala Harris, who slept her way up in government. You would not have Joe Biden, who's been a a liar, a corrupt politician. You're dealing with... A position, the presidency that has seen everyone from John Kennedy messing around with women, Bill Clinton. I don't buy it for a moment, and it's a hypocrisy because if you're satisfied, but any theologian who's going to say that he or she is satisfied now with a liar like Joe Biden and um, and someone as morally corrupt and decrepit as Kamala Harris, I mean, come on.
5: Yeah, I, I mean, it's it, it's, um, it's it's fascinating the position that the David Frenches of the world take, really, because it, you what you just the riff that you just went on, they would say, well, that's what about And it's not what about saying, here's the standard. And uh, on some scores, Trump failed to live up to the standard. And on those same scores, Joe Biden has failed to live up to the standard and and perhaps more spectacularly so. So so that matters, too. You know, I, Dan Proft or Rabbi Doug Fisher, we're not selecting who the nominees are going to be for president of the United States. That's a process and then we have to make this choice based on what is presented for consideration. And somehow we have to apologize when we say, you know, this is somebody who is closer to the standards and I believe will act more closely to the standards than the other person. I, all of this, uh, you know, moralizing uh, from from people like French and, and others, I, I just find really grating, frankly.
13: Very true. And during the primaries back in 2016, all right, I voted Mike Huckabee. He was closer to my theology. Uh, again, I'm Orthodox Jew. He's Christian evangelical. I, I kind of like Mike Huckabee. But we ended up with the candidacy of Trump. And you know what? Donald Trump, he was an honor. He really was, in certain ways, a more honorable president. That is to say, whatever he had done, let's say, before his presidential years, he conducted his four years in the White House a lot more honorably. If you're a theologian and you're worried about morality, he and his family lived somewhat honorably in the White House. And more importantly, the laws that he passed and the public policies he he pursued were policies that did more for morality, for morality, the things that a theologian, a Christian evangelical would care about. Um, Look, Biden just came in now with transgenderism and opening up children's bathrooms again, uh, so that boys, uh, biological boys can go into girls' bathrooms and he's going to be destroying women's sports that have been empowered under Title IX uh, by by allowing males who say that they feel that they're female now to compete against women yeah. in their own women's sports. And, and, and that's and, you-
5: and, and that's just waved off by the David French's of the role as, oh, that's a few executive orders. You know, it's a few executive orders we have to battle and then, you know, in four years we'll come back and battle them as the culture, you know, continues to degrade at uh, – at, 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 at the speed of sound. Um, I, I, I want to pick. Sound. Uh, I want to pick up uh, our conversation here, and also fold in your perspective on the Biden administration as compared to the left's perspective on the Trump administration and his supporters. More with Rabbi Duff Fisher, high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law, and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California. Jason right after. This.
0: The more you'll know this is this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Rabbi Doug Fisher. He's a high stakes litigation attorney, adjunct professor of law and rabbi of young Israel of Orange County, California. And Rabbi, before the break, uh, talking uh, about uh, the Biden administration and your your perspective on Joe Biden. But uh, in a piece you wrote for The Spectator, living with the Biden government, uh, you basically say, you know, he's a liar and a crook, but I I can live it. I can live through it. We'll survive it. Uh, Compare that perspective, that sort of approach to a president you didn't vote for, to the approach being taken by those now in charge of the federal government with respect to Trump supporters for past conduct and also the devolution. After 2016 and the shock to them of Trump's election, it was let's go out for a few minutes and try to figure out who these people are that voted for Trump since we don't know any of them. Um, we we, you know, we have to ask ourselves how thick is our bubble and try to be more self-aware and so on and so forth. That's all gone now. Now it is we scorch the earth. So the left wants to scorch the earth while, for example, the approach that you're taking is, you know, we continue to uh, articulate our views. We continue to fight against uh, those policies we oppose and we'll survive four years and come what may. Um, is your approach, does that work against their approach?
13: We, we just don't have really an American culture in the past that saw a sort of scorched earth cancel culture after an election in which a winning side assuming they won clean assuming the results really are what we're we're going to have to accept we've never had a sense uh, 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 an example where they actually went about destroying people on the losing side searching them out trying to fire them from their jobs fire them from academia if you don't have tenure but you 're an adjunct professor you 're in danger right now. You know we had a slogan a lot of us pro trump people uh, there was that slogan: "Lock her up, lock her up uh, because Hillary Clinton does belong in federal prison. she did co- she did commit felonies uh, when she destroyed the thirty three thousand emails which but, but which is absolutely a federal uh, crime a spoliation of evidence. nevertheless, when Trump was elected for all the For all the chanting, lock her up, the fact is the Trump administration never took a step in the direction of actually trying to imprison Hillary Clinton or incriminate her or put her on trial. It was a slogan, but it wasn't the American way. You beat Clinton, and that's it. We move on, and we govern now. This idea of now taking an election and turning it into an excuse to purge one's enemies that's the kind of thing that we associate with the Soviet Union, of a previous time, darkness at noon, show trials, this kind of thing. It's not the American way.
5: And so, but but the response is the response. Then does it need to be uh, altered at all from previous uh, elections, where after Obama, we'll survive Obama. We got to fight o- Obamacare and so on and so forth. But there wasn't this purge afoot after Bill Clinton won in ninety two. There wasn't this purge afoot. Does the purge that is afoot that you're describing, and we see examples of it every day, uh, significant examples, does it require responding in a different way than we are accustomed to?
13: I think we do have to be prepared to go to court in many situations and to sue the heck out of certain employers and others if they, uh, if they for example, terminate people uh, in violation of the public policy uh, that's represented by the First Amendment freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, uh, freedom to uh, advocate on that level. And I do believe in certain situations it will be important to go to court. But on another level, I think that we as as, uh, conservative populists, I guess that's the term more even than to use the term Republican, as conservative populists who believe in a different kind of approach, we're going to have to fight. The, the Biden administration primarily by by girding our loins and getting ready to take back the Congress in two years. We're what about, going to take back. Yeah. The
5: Congress. What, what about the, this idea that was uh, bandied about on a blog? Sort of interesting. And and, and um, you get to it, but you don't uh, propose this in your piece about the Mike Lindell and, and Trump supporters being everywhere. Mike Lindell here, here again is somebody who's being deplatformed. His products are being removed from stores and so forth. Um, but the um, The idea that, you know, uh, all those deplorables, those credulous boomer rubes, they're uh, in a lot of the skilled trades that so many of the champagne socialists rely on. So the next time you call your HVAC vendor because you got a problem with the furnace and he asks you, who'd you vote for? Or the next time a plumber shows up and says, you know, I was going to snake that drain, but uh, I see you have a hate has no home here sign in your yard. So, no, I'm not going to. Um, what about the response from Trump supporters to deplatform the left where they can? The way the left is deplatforming the right.
13: I'm not big on that. I'm big on beating them straight frontally. I'm not as big on deplatforming them or taking revenge because, in the long run, I believe that creates a kind of war and hatred that that just gets deeper and deeper. It, it began with really Obama. Obama came in. In 2008, to a happy country that was doing very well, we had racial harmony, we had no real social discord, and he came with a bitterness and an agenda. He came in, he was supposed to be proof that America was past any kind of racial divides. Here we elected a president who identified as black, even though he was uh, reared by his white grandmother, his white mother's black father had practically nothing to do with him was in africa the whole time he he was raised in hawaii he was raised at columbia university for undergrad however he got in there and he was raised at harvard law school and um but he was talking about you know he he's like post-racial and he came he created an environment that created this kind of a bitter divide racially, socially, and I'm just not into, when we take back the House and Senate in two years, and uh, God willing, the presidency in 2024, returning it to conservative populism again. uh, I'm not as interested in seeing us go after uh, Democrats and liberals on a personal basis. That's sort of what I think the game plan's gotta be. We already control most of the majority of state houses, uh, I think that's more important in the end uh, than trying to be bitter because when you get into that bitter uh, we'll destroy you kind of mentality down the line uh, there's a price to be paid for that just as the way that we feel right now even more bitter by the way they're trying to go after us personally
5: Rabbi Dov Fisher, High stakes litigation attorney adjunct professor of law and rabbi of Young Israel of Orange County, California Rabbi Dov Fisher, thanks as always for joining us appreciate it
13: Thank you so much for having
0: me again. show hey, tomorrow. Come on. Listen to the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
5: Welcome back to the show. Could Gavin Newsom really face a recall and get recalled? Well, um, it's picking up in pace. You have uh, former mayor of San Diego, Kevin Falconer, who's announced that he would be a candidate in a recall if a recall were triggered by uh, uh, getting the requisite number of signatures. One point five million by March 17th, I believe, are the, the magic numbers. And uh, Falconer already raised a million bucks, which is, I know, chump change in California, but it's starred enough to have him formally throw his hat in the ring as it were. And uh it's really interesting where Gavin Newsom finds himself. I I thought this interview by a uh, health policy wonk uh, from California Healthline in Slate was useful because this is coming from the left, right? So what's what's really happening here? Not just wishful thinking, what's really happening? Uh this woman whose name is um uh Angela Hart uh tells slate magazine i always try to gut check myself about if this is still a long shot i went on a lot of my democratic sources and i did not hear anybody with a full throttle defense of the governor's leadership i did not hear anybody say this is not a governor newsom problem she goes on to say uh, that he's got lots of problems and people are very upset about his management of things like the vaccine rollout people can't find very basic information here. People can't figure out where to get an appointment. They can't figure out who to call. They can't figure out where their place in line is. Uh, and um, she um, gave, you know, some anecdotal examples of what she's talking about. And, oh, by the way, Gavin Newsom has now turned over the vaccine rollout to uh, Blue Shield. Um, and uh, Miss Hart says that, too, is causing people just throw up their arms. People really upset. Uh, you know, how did you not have a plan to distribute the vaccine? And now I'm and now you and I are going to have to pay Blue Shield millions of dollars to do it, even though they had no expertise in this area It's a total abdication of leadership. Uh, people are angry, she says, so angry, quoting her. Why can't California do this? What changed? We don't know how much this contract is costing the state. We haven't been able to get answers. We don't know some of the mechanics of how it's going to work. Really important details. She says, you know, while this is still largely a volunteer-driven effort, the recall and the signature gathering for the recall, um, that, uh, that that's sort of the a feature, not the bug, that's being driven by real grassroots energy. People are tired of it. And um, to some extent, she admits that she's frustrated as well. You know, first, the golden boy who was going to be a, a, perhaps a presidential candidate in 2024, and now looks like he's struggling to survive 2021, uh, and uh, she does note that uh, the the infamous French Laundry episode. She says of that, you know, where he was seen hanging out with donors and lobbyists without wearing masks and so on and so forth, while everything shut down, at least except Tony Roman's place in Huntington Beach that we talked about yesterday. She uh, says, though, certainly that was a turning point. Governor Newsom at the French Laundry, hip, very upscale, trendy restaurant in Wine County in California. I've heard it everywhere. I've heard it from Republicans. I've heard it from independents. I've heard it from Democrats. It's optics, but it's even deeper than that. Everybody has sacrificed so much. We've been, by and large, locked in our houses for the better part of a year. And to see the governor flippantly ignoring his own rules hit a nerve. Well, it should have. I hope it did. I hope it hits a nerve that recalls him right out of office. This is Dan Proft.
0: This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Jen saki is the white house press secretary uh she was uh, queried about um platforming which is sort of a sanitized way of saying purging people you disagree with whether it's social media platforms or corporate boardrooms uh and uh she needs to uh, circle back with us on that like on every question she's asked
7: I can I'll circle back. If there's more, I can share with you. I'll circle back with you. If there's more to convey, I'll have to just circle back with you. We can circle back. I'm happy to circle back with you. I can circle back. I will have to circle back on that one. That's an excellent question. Oh, such an important question. we will circle back with you and we'll circle back with you. It's an interesting question, but we'll circle back. I'm happy to circle back, but I'll have to circle back with you on it. It's a good question, but we'll circle back with you on this today. We will certainly circle back with you more directly.
5: All right, great. And uh, she circled back with us on that yesterday when asked uh, whether or not uh, Joe Biden is supportive of the uh, big tech silencing of former President Trump. Does President Biden support the
3: continuing ban of of, of President Trump on their sites?
7: I think that's a decision made by Twitter. We've we've certainly spoken to and he's spoken to um, the need for social media platforms to continue to take steps to reduce hate speech. Um, But we don't have more for you on it than that.
5: Translation, yes. Yes. Uh, that's the translation there. Uh, that uh, egghead on CNN. And I don't mean because he's smart. I mean, because his head is shaped like an egg. Brian Stelter, who actually got um, sort of, well, I don't know, chastised, but maybe chastened a bit by outgoing n c n n CNN uh, boss uh, Rick Davis on uh, having more center right guests on his program, which is a thought he never considered. Listen to him talking about uh, the censorious culture and, this uh, distinction he makes on freedom of speech in a free society
9: and the polluters are trying to deflect blame. Dishonest cries of censorship are filling Fox's airwaves with charges that these guys right here are being suppressed. The word censorship has been invoked almost 400 times on Fox this month alone and more than 300 times on Newsmax. You know, post-insurrection, a book publisher decided that it did not want to be in business with Senator Josh Hawley. So he's been on a national TV tour claiming he's muzzled. And Tucker Carlson is telling viewers that this network, CNN, is trying to force Fox News off the air, which is patently false. It's as predictable as the sunrise. Democrats win elections and then Republicans say they are being silenced. But while some cry cancel culture, let me suggest a different way to think about this. A harm reduction model. Most people want clean air and blue skies and accurate news and rational views. And then in that healthy environment that looks beautiful, then we can have great fights about taxes and regulation and healthcare and all the rest. The vast majority of people can agree that disinformation about, let's say, the pandemic is unhealthy. It's harmful. So how can that harm be reduced? Well, big tech platforms say they are removing lies about vaccines and stamping out stop the steal BS and QAnon cult content. Now, do these private companies have too much power? Sure. Many people would say, yes, of course they do. But reducing a liar's reach is not the same as censoring freedom of speech.
5: Reducing a liar's reach is not the same thing as censoring freedom of speech. What you heard there is a, a beautiful a lie in support of the end of free thinking and free speaking in a free society from that's you know, all polished up by that goof Brian Stelter who is a complete intellectual lightweight, which is why he doesn't have people on his show that differ from him. And uh, we've actually seen that happen. It doesn't even take much of an intellect to tear him apart. Michael Wolf uh, back in the day before he came out with his Trump book and sort of discredited himself with his uh, if it sounds true, it probably is true standard of truth telling uh, was just one example of somebody who's had to tell Brian Stelter, you know, you're really quite ridiculous. And he really is. But the position that he holds, this harm reduction model, freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Actually, that runs counter to Supreme Court jurisprudence on the topic. He, doesn't, he does not understand what time, uh, manner, content restrictions are. Of course he doesn't. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito. She is a Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor. Uh-oh, I hope I'm not in trouble. Author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
4: Thanks for having me. I'm no longer a CNN contributor, so you're not in trouble.
5: Okay, very good. All (laughs) right, good. I'm I'm making a correction to the record right now uh, to distinguish (laughs) myself from CNN. I'm correcting the record. What what about? You know, uh, White House Press Secretary essentially giving a nod to the deplatforming of Trump and, and, you know, under the guise of hate speech and Brian Stelter's whole riff on silencing liars, the harm reduction model for speech in a free society. I mean, as somebody who's a member of the Fourth Estate, um, I'm old enough to remember when the Fourth Estate was mostly populated by First Amendment absolutists.
4: Well, you know, I, I have a really deep concern that we now have a society who when you don't like something you hear or that something that someone says, rather than shrug it off, you know, um, we decide to destroy and or make an enemy of them and, 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 and bring other people along with us in terms of, we need to condemn this person. Uh, I remember I had a teacher when I was a young girl who taught us we live in a democracy and you should expect to be insulted at least 17 times a day. And I thought that was at the time when she taught us that, I, and it was a nun, I thought, wow, that's what does that mean? But, you know, as I grew older, I understood that was the freedom of speech, that people can be insulting to you or your belief system, and it's okay because... You know that's the consequence and the liberty of free speech. This generation and the way that cable television and social media now works—it's almost as if it's part of its model to destroy your ability to be insulting.
5: Yeah, I, well, that's that's well said. Um, I just wish more of your colleagues in the press corps believed as you do. I'm sure you do as well, but they don't. And so uh, we fight on. Um, I wanted to get your take on something else, too. This is really a, a great moment in fiscal conservatism. This may be the greatest pronouncement in the history of America with respect to spending other people's money. Chuck Schumer.
12: It makes no sense to pinch pennies when so many Americans are struggling. The risk of doing too little is far greater than the risk of doing too much,
5: that nine hundred billion dollars uh, we uh, just spent, which isn't even out the door yet. Uh, if we don't do another two trillion on top of the eight trillion or so so far, then we're pinching pennies in a country that's got one hundred and twenty uh, trillion dollars in unfunded liabilities and debt carry. No time to pinch pennies, and Republicans uh, are very much in the model of pre Gingrich Republicans. It seems to me, with Susan Collins leading the way where Malcolm Wallop observed upon his retirement before the Gingrich Revolution in 94, Malcolm Wallop, former Republican senator from Wyoming, if the Democrats proposed a bill to burn down the Capitol, Republicans would compromise and agree to phase it in over three years. And that's what I see <laughs> happening <laughs> right now with uh, $1.9 trillion versus another $600 billion.
4: Well, we have lost the ability, and maybe it's the time Maybe it's that nuance is dead. But we have uh, conservatives and, and or just any politician has lost the ability to communicate just how dangerous being in debt is to the country and the larger implications of spending, 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 spending. You know, there is a price to pay for that. And instead of being able to articulate that, and it should be a Democrat or a Republican, should be able to say, this is dangerous. This is not good. They're unable to say that. And because of that, in our culture today, what prevails as compassionate is to say, well, if you don't spend this, you're, you know, or or, or if you don't do this, or you, if you don't spend all this money, you're a horrible person and people will die. And we... W- um, people in Washington need to get back to be able to say, look, we can't do this. We can't spend this because of this, but this is what we can do to help people.
5: When we come back with Washington examiner, Selena Zito, I want to talk about the thing that, uh, there is virtual unanimity inside the beltway on, and that is continuing to spend beyond our means more with Selena Zito right after this.
8: You ain't worth the salt in my tea. You ain't worth the salt in my tea.
0: This is the Dan Proft show.
5: Welcome back to The Dan Prof Show. We're talking with Washington, the Washington Examiner's Selena Zito before the break about uh, this uh, COVID uh, relief package 3.0. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, there are a few people who even bother to pay lip service to any sort of spending restraint.
4: No, they're not. And we and we did write about that. You know, they're there as part of that coalition. Were, um, were people that were descendants of the New Deal coalition, right? And, and, and those ideals in the New Deal coalition was spend money. Uh, and, and we the problem is, is think about Barstow, you know, and how it's, it's helped other people. We've lost the ability to embrace that in in a lot of different aspects. That social safety net created by ourselves and each other, rather than a reliance on government. And and I think that that's really important to get back to that. And and you see this sort of emergence within the Trump coalition. They're, they're all they're almost becoming the the Barstow coalition, where they are going towards helping each other rather than the government just handing us out checks. I think that's the new aspect that we're that is going to rise up among conservatives.
5: Selena, talk to us about the, the human impact of President Biden's executive order killing the Keystone pipeline. You uh, interviewed actual human beings impacted by it. And and it really puts a human face on it and gives us some perspective on what that action is uh means in terms of uh, negatively impacting people's lives.
4: Strongly recommend people go and read that story. You can just grab it at com. But you know, she's sitting in her hotel, it's a really cool hotel. It's like something out of a Gary Cooper or John Wayne movie, right? It's in South Dakota. It's in the West. It has that feel um and and it's empty. And she said they they bought it in September. They had been booked every day since the first day they opened. You know, they built a um a community room inside the hotel so people could have breakfast together and coffee. And it was mostly union plumbers, you know, pipe bidders, welders, laborers who stayed there and worked on the pipeline. On the morning of the inauguration they were it was at four o'clock in the morning and everyone was in there. Right? and they're go you know leaving to go out to work um, by four in the afternoon it was completely cleared out on inauguration day why because Biden signed the executive order killing the, the pipeline it doesn't just impact the workers though it impacts places like the Strobel hotel you know it's not just the job it's the job that those people supported it's the barber It's the churches, it's the schools, it's the tax base of the town, it's the hotels and gas stations. There's a trickle, there's a snowball effect that that politicians miss.
5: And well, one would hope that um, they would pursue legal action here because uh, ironically, there is a Trump era decision by John Roberts, which is a terrible decision, but it's the Supreme Court's holding nonetheless in the DACA case that you can't just rescind an executive order that created a reliance interest. And you could, I think, convincingly argue that you you created a reliance interest with respect to the, uh, the, a reliance interest was created with respect to the pipeline, and you can't just rescind that through executive order without going through an administrative process to slow this down and give more people, at minimum, more of a chance to uh, reposition if ultimately that's going to be the outcome. It would seem to me, whether it's um, a private business or a public interest law firm, let's find somebody to rally to the defense of these people.
4: Yeah, and what I find fascinating is fascinating, and it's what I'm working on right now to figure it out, to figure the story out. But the pipe, the, the oil is still going to come through from Canada. Right. It's just not going to come through on a pipeline. Right. And the pipeline, by by far, it was much more environmentally safe than than bringing it over the border from Canada with trains and and trucks. The diesel trucks and the trains are going to leave a much larger uh, carbon footprint. If that's what you measure what the the viability of something's um, uh, uh, impact on climate change, it is going to have a much bigger um, uh, impact in in terms of um, how they measure, um, you know, climate change than going through the pipeline. So then you have to think. Okay, who benefits from this? Well, mostly trains. Okay, who Warren owns most trains? Warren Buffett. Okay, who's the biggest contributor to Biden? Oh, Warren Buffett. Those oh, are just con- those are just
5: those are just unhappy coincidences, Selena. Nothing to see here. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get I wanted to get your take on one more topic before we let you go, and that is the uh, John Weaver story. And uh, the press coverage of the John Weaver story is starting to happen now because the New York Times has uh, uh, done some coverage. But uh, the questions that have not been asked of the Lincoln Project cast, all of whom are D.C. insiders, all of whom, uh, from what I understand from Ryan Gerdusky, who broke the story, all of whom have heard no about these allegations that have swirled around John Weaver for more than two decades um, are we going to see uh, uh, those individuals, the George Conways and the Rick Wilsons and the Steve Schmitz, all of the celebrities on CNN and, M- and MSNBC because they share Trump hatred, uh, be called to the carpet? Uh,
4: probably not. Uh, oh, but OK. <laughs> but but the truth, but the truth is, though, no, I don't live in D.C. I, I live in in Western Pennsylvania. But, you, you know, even even I had heard the rumors, you know, years ago, um, that, that, um, that he had, um, issues, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, you know, it, it, it's a very clubby town and they protect each other, uh, fiercely, uh, e- even across party lines because it's, you know, their team, everyone's part of the team. And and uh, a conservative journalist um, and and one of the uh, victims of his predatory behavior just said, "You know what? That's it. I'm 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 breaking the I'm breaking the wall here, and we're going to talk about it." And it was still ignored two weeks ago when the story came out in conservative news. Uh, but for some reason it finally broke the wall and was in the new york times and so i uh, i don't think that that you can you know go backwards on this story but i wonder if there will be the pursuit of the people that um that that hit it within uh, if they did within this um this little club
5: she is Selena Zito, Washington Examiner, reporter, New York Post columnist, author of The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. The website again selenazito.com as well. Selena, thanks as always.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and 20 bucks says Harriet Tubman was conservative. That's a bet that uh, Michael Taub made in the form of an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, and uh, it's just entertaining enough to explore. You, know, you always get in trouble if you're a conservative and you suggest that an iconic uh, black figure may have agreed with you on some issues. <laughs> you know, conservatives aren't allowed to invoke Martin Luther King Jr. They're not allowed to invoke the uh, uh, the work of Frederick Douglass. I mean, actually, what they said, what they believed, uh, accurately. For fear of uh, expropriating an icon of the left but uh i'm glad michael tobe was unafraid he joins us now he's a columnist for troy media and looney politics was a speechwriter for former canadian prime minister stephen harper michael tobe thanks for joining us appreciate it
12: my pleasure dan thanks for having me
5: and uh so the uh, case for harriet tubman uh, she has been uh, re-elevated in terms of uh, uh, let's expedite getting her visage on the twenty dollar bill replacing andrew jackson I don't know. It's something that I'm fine with. It It doesn't bother me. Uh, She's a great American. But um, some uncomfortable truths about uh, Harriet Tubman, at least for those doing things like, I don't know, removing Abraham Lincoln's name from schools in San Francisco.
3: Yes,
12: you're right. Those are certainly part of them. It's unfortunate. Many years ago, this sort of intellectual discourse, yeah, I mean, people would talk about it on the left and the right, and there would be obviously some element of frustration. But one way or the other, policy would just move along, or the idea would move along, and it would either be accepted or rejected, or so on. It's interesting, though, unfortunately, as the years have gone on on along, and I'm sure you've seen in your radio show too, Dan, unfortunately, people get very, very possessive about ideas and people, places, and things. And Harriet, tubman is one of them you know harriet tubman is a prominent person in the u.s civil war she was a spy she was a patriot for the north she was a great woman overall but when people hear terminology that she was essentially a republican as we define a republican today and i'm sure we'll get into it a little bit and that she would have probably been an advocate for gun rights when you start hearing terminology like that people start saying well wait that's not historically sound that's not historically accurate but you have to go back to the crux of it which is looking at her text looking at her writing or just examining her as a person because i'm not the first person to have ever actually suggested this over the years dan but when it came out in the wall street journal just a couple days ago it's astonishing how people erupted or maybe i shouldn't be that astonished
5: well give us a flavor for that what'd you get in terms of feedback
12: there's over 600 people who commented. I can tell you most of them were pretty negative, which was unsurprising. And it just comes into the same sort of thing. You know, how can you call Harriet Tubman a conservative? Was Abraham Lincoln really a conservative? Wasn't he a liberal? How can you associate people just because they're talking about gun rights with the Republican Party, et cetera, et cetera?
5: And the, the fun part about right. that is, you know, how can you associate uh, the Republican Party with opposition to racism just because the party was founded on the abolition of slavery? <laughs> you know, I mean, you can exactly. play you can play. The that game all day long it it you're you're so right about how people like tether themselves to an idea or a time period or a person and just won't let that go or or won't allow any texture regardless of the facts
12: No, exactly. And for example, other people also sort of came back with the argument that Abraham Lincoln, as you know, started off as a Whig. That's what he originally was. Mm -hmm. And he eventually moved with about two thirds of the Whig members who would go to the National Republican Party, or what we now call the Republican Party today, the modern one. Because of that, a lot of people say, well, wait, if you look at the history of Whigs, both in the United States, the UK and elsewhere, there were elements of liberalism at the time. There were also elements of conservatism. If we accept the that the words liberal and conservative have evolved over the past couple of centuries, which they certainly have, how can you therefore tie Harriet Tubman to today's conservative movement? Because sometimes, unfortunately, when it comes to political philosophy or just comes to writing about these things, you have to simplify it so that people understand point A, B, and C all connect. Ergo, yes, Harriet Tubman would probably have been different, you know, and she was different at the time she lived in. You know, she was a black woman who lived under slavery, couldn't vote, and as a woman, didn't even have the right to vote in her lifetime. She died in 1913, seven years before the suffragette movement was successful. But there's nothing to say in what she's written, what she's discussed, and what she's meant to so many people that she wasn't on the side of the Republican Party. She sided with many Republicans. She was friendly with William Seward, who was a prominent member of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet. And in fact, there's a whole story in my piece, not to spoil the whole thing, yeah. where she actually left her 10-year-old niece with people who, you know, who actually are still in possession of her gun, family members that is. It's extraordinary how all these things sort of tie together, but to tie Harriet Tubman to anything and argue that she would be part of today's Black Lives you know, Black Lives Matter, the Democratic Party, it's all a shell game to some degree, but if you look at Harriet Tubman the person, the thinker, and just the individual, she is much more, or has much more in common with today's Republican Party than anything else.
5: I, I want to talk a little bit more about the evolution, too, I mean, her own evolution in terms of relationship with Lincoln, for example, more with uh, Michael Tobe, a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics, former speechwriter for Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh,
0: will be right here. the more you'll know this is this, this is the Dan Proft show
5: Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Michael Tobe. He's a columnist for Troy Media and Looney Politics. He was a speechwriter for former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper as well. And we're talking about his piece in the journal. 20 bucks says Harriet Tubman was conservative. And you made a couple of points right before the break that I wanted to get to. One is this idea that, you know, you have to use sort of a handle for the definition of conservative in today versus uh, 50 years ago, 150 years ago, and so forth. And so, you know, part of the problem, right, is that you use conservative today and you're going to have so many people just say, oh, you mean Harriet Truman would have voted for Trump? And that's, that's not what I mean at all, right? I mean, looking at the substance of the views that she held and the way that she conducted her life and how that, you know, translates uh, 150 years later. But it, people have a hard time reconciling that.
12: Look, I mean, obviously, I'm not a soothsayer. I can't look into any screen and say to you that would Harriet Tubman have voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020? I have no idea. I don't know if today's Democratic Party, at least based on the comments that I've seen and the comments directed at me, necessarily understand that or recognize that as they continue to make their huge journey into the far left, of which many have, you know, not everyone is necessarily in the United States like AOC and the squad, I readily admit. But unfortunately, today's Democratic Party is very different than the Democratic Party, you know, in the days when Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill would have a drink in the White House. I think Democrats, and I think a lot of Americans, are struggling to sort of understand that you can place a historical figure in a modern context, and you might have to sort of slice and dice a little bit, but it can properly fit if you go back to the words, the ideas, the concepts of the person, and try to tie them all together.
5: Well, there's something, too, Then you recounted this in passing in your piece, which is Harriet Tubman's sort of evolution of thinking about Abraham Lincoln. She didn't take a liking to him right away, and this is also instructive, because this isn't about political philosophy. It's sort of like how people grow based on the conduct they see from others, which is something a lot of people are incapable of doing these days.
12: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very briefly, the reason that Harriet Tubman didn't respect Abraham Lincoln in the beginning is because she was very frustrated that white soldiers who were serving in the Union Army were actually being paid more than black soldiers. So on the surface, she was looking at this disparity, but what happened was she eventually changed her opinion after Mr. Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. And one of her friends, who was a fellow abolitionist, Sojourner Truth, who was also a slave at one point of her life, she met with Abraham Lincoln in 1864 and praised them so mightily to Harriet Tubman and exclaimed to her that really Abraham Lincoln is a friend to African Americans, is a friend to the Black community, and wants the slaves to be free, to live their own lives like other Americans do and like other people around the world do. That changed her tune quite dramatically. And although she unfortunately never had the chance to meet Mr. Lincoln, she still had a great admiration for Abraham Lincoln past that point and respected his beliefs so much that they really became, intertwined or interwoven with her own. And I think that's actually kind of fascinating.
5: I think it is, too. I think it's also just a reminder of, of, uh, you know, it's a reminder that all cliches are true. Uh, Don't listen to what people say. Watch what they do. That tells you who they are. And so, you know, in this context, too, where press release politics and people can just take a position and make a statement and then there's never the follow up to say, well, did that rhetoric match the real world actions? Um, yeah. and, and there's a real disconnect between those two things. I can't, so many people get away with just staking out a position and not have to do any of the heavy lifting.
12: No, you're absolutely right. I completely agree. And unfortunately, that's the easy part. Staking a position is simple. We can easily take a position on anything. But staking your position or your claim and then defending your actions or defending why your position is such is actually a lot harder. You know, it takes thought. It takes intelligence. It just takes basically some problem-solving skills. And unfortunately, I finally have less of it as time goes along rather than more of it. Totally. And that's really unfortunate, you know. And this has nothing to do with you in the United States, me in Canada, whatever. We're seeing it worldwide, and I think that's really very sad to see. And Harriet Tubman is one of many instances where people just naturally assume looking at her because of the color of her skin, her background, and the, the life that she led, that she has to be this no matter what the time period is. I think sometimes we have to have a reality check and realize that people can be many different things at many different periods of time in life.
5: Well, it's, it seems to, yeah, right, it, it, because it's easy, people just pound, pound, pound labels in every direction, yep. pound Pound, pound, pound label. So then I, I I don't need to scratch below the surface. I don't need to do any investigation. And g- God forbid I do any thinking to try and marry <laughs> to try and marry any complicated concepts up. I mean, it's it's uh, it's, it's it's really interesting in, in point of fact. It's so interesting that those who are the most radical on the left, the the real Jacobins, Mm -hmm. you know, I almost have more respect for them when they, for example, those in the Black Lives Matter movement who reject Martin Luther King and say Malcolm X is the model. Now we're actually having a conversation about people with different views on how you affect social change. And so there's a choice that is being laid bare. Mm Uh, Among a population that is supposed to appreciate peaceful pluralism. Now we're having a conversation. All this other stuff of you're this and I'm that and you're that and I'm this is just so uh, it just goes nowhere. It goes nowhere
12: no you're absolutely right i agree with you my position is not much different than you i have friends who are liberals who are socialists and otherwise in in canada but it's usually the people who are on the the left-leaning new democratic party which is our socialist party in canada they're the ones that i tend to get along with the most not because ideologically i have anything in common with them but they're at least ideologically sound in their position i know that they're not straddling the fence they're taking position x they'll have explanation Y. I may not agree with it overall, which is position Z, but at least I can respect the fact that they're thinking and they're saying to themselves, this is what I believe in, this is what I support. Everything else around me is just scuttlebutt or noise, as I said to you. I want to ensure that my position is heard properly. But I think it's actually sad to see when people are just sort of set in their ways and are unwilling to at least discuss things. I really just wish people would just sit down and try to understand things. It doesn't mean after you read something hear something or learn something, you're going to change your opinion. Generally speaking, if you're a strong person, you won't. But on the other hand, if you don't open up, your, open up your mind to some extent and ensure that you're not just living in an echo chamber day in and day out, I don't really know what the point of it is, and I really don't know how much you're really enjoying life because it's diversity or, you know, that's the key to spy, the spice of life is really the amount of diversity we have in society. So I think that should be the important thing. So whether people agree or disagree that Harriet Tubman was, a, you know, was essentially a Republican and was a supporter of gun rights, that's up to them to decide. But to immediately look at the headline or go through a few lines and then just readily dismiss it as utter nonsense, I don't really have a lot of respect for that myself.
5: Michael Tobe, columnist for the Troy Media and Looney Politics, former speechwriter for former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Fun chat. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Dan. Take care.
0: Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. To close it out, how about an artistic recommendation? Uh, How about um, enjoying things that are beautiful as opposed to the dreariness that we have to so much discuss of politics and policy and the battles on all fronts? One of the most beautiful movies I've seen, and I do mean beautiful, an incredible film, and it just posted on Netflix of course, we've had a Darth of, of new content on some of the streaming services because of the pandemic and productions that are shut down. It's the dig. Uh, maybe it's, it's starting to uh, bubble up to the surface. I watched it this weekend, and it's starting to make some waves. People taking notice taking notice of it. I'm seeing some chatter online. It's um, directed by this young guy who founded an independent theater company. He's uh, Australian. His name is uh, Simon Stone. He, w- w- what a masterful job he did. I mean, it really has that sort of theatrical quality, too. It stars Ralph Fiennes and Carrie Mulligan. And of course, Ralph Fiennes, English patient, accomplished actor, Shakespearean background. Uh, Carrie Mulligan is f- fantastic as well. Uh, and it's uh, based on a true story about an um, excavation on an English manor during the run-up to World War II in the UK. The uh, excavator, self-taught, Basil Brown that's the Ralph Fiennes character and the lady of the house uh, who is a widow and uh, has a son she commissions him to dig up these mounds on her property she has an intuition that it could be something of archaeological significance in the mounds and you know without getting into what exactly he finds and how it all plays out but in addition to just being something that is you know the, no CGI, no special effects, no violence. It's all very sort of you know prim and proper and British. But there's something else to it. The Find character Basil Brown, real person, uh, makes a couple of references to it throughout the film. As uh, a couple of comments on it that are so important. Somebody who's you know self-taught archaeologist. The importance of our history and uh, what they find, how it sort of informs the march of civilization. From centuries ago to present, with a look forward. And I just thought, in this, the timing of this couldn't be better with so many in the political activist space wanting to rewrite the past, wanting to erase the past and just start history anew day one, which is the impetus of the autocrat, for such a beautiful piece of art to be made and presented for mass consumption. That has as its thread the importance of our history, where we came from, that informs who we are and what we can or cannot be, what we choose or choose not to be. I thought was, um, was just uh, uh, serendipitous. I don't know if, the, I, I'm sure the director <laughs> hadn't planned for the political climate in which the movie was released or the production house. But um, it's timely in that way as well uh, as a film that's as good as this is, is always timely and welcome. So check it out. It's on Netflix, The Dig, with uh, Ralph Fiennes and Kerry Mulligan. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please stay informed so you can act courageously and we can live free. Join us again tomorrow for another edition of the program. This is The Dan Prof Show.